Let's open our King James Bibles to Isaiah chapter 13. As I recommended to the church to you yesterday, the slide presentation that was made this past Wednesday night was to give you a foundation to appreciate Isaiah 13 and 14 a little more than without it. And for any viewing this service or hearing this message later, I would recommend that you find on our website for September 4th a slide presentation about Babylon so that you can appreciate this chapter. The great, the greatest enemy of the Old Testament church was historical, literal Babylon in the plains of Shinar, and the greatest enemy of Bible Christianity in the New Testament is mystical Babylon or Rome as described in Revelation chapter 17. And so the Lord used the name of Babel, which is Babylon, in both Testaments as the great enemy of His church. Isaiah 13 starts us into a new section of Isaiah, and it's different than what we've covered, especially in the last six chapters or so, about Emmanuel, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you were to ask me, which is your favorite any other week of the year but this one, which is your favorite, Isaiah 13 or Isaiah 11, I would tell you Isaiah 11. Because Isaiah 11 is all about the Lord Jesus Christ, and Isaiah 13 is all about Babylon and the Medes and the Persians. So there's a difference there. This chapter has 22 verses, and we're going to finish it in less than an hour. I hope that you will focus your attention. You make it through movies longer than that, and through sporting events that bore you to tears with all their ridiculous advertisements. Those athletes, please understand how I mean this. Those athletes are the least conditioned men on earth because every two minutes, they're allowed two minutes to stand around and high-five each other while you have to watch a commercial. And so they extend these games with barely 60 minutes of activity to three and a half hours. Just, just keep that in mind. But right now, can you, will you say to the Lord, not to me, to the Lord, thank you for your word. I want to know Isaiah 13. I want to know it's 22 verses. I want to believe what is there. I want to be able to teach it to those that don't know it. And I'd like a little bit of ability to defend it to those that might attack it. Let's accomplish that. And let's rejoice in what is written here. Our God is a great and glorious King. The Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 6, verses 13 through 16, He is the blessed and only potentate. King of kings and Lord of lords. And He will certainly show that in His destruction of Babylon. Babylon was the greatest city on earth. Babylon is the greatest city of history for its thousands of years of existence, but today it is nothing but mounds and heaps, except for a few modern bricks laid by Saddam Hussein in the 1980s in his effort to rebuild the city that God would never let be rebuilt. And so his little paltry palace that was built there that cost him five million U.S., is totally stripped and naked. Even the glass has been taken from all the windows. It is as desolate as the mounds and swampy reeds around it. Because our God reigns, and He wasn't going to let a city get away with what they did to His temple and to His people. He wasn't going to let a city get away whose name began with their rebellion in the plain of Shinar, to build a tower up to heaven and get themselves a name so that they would not be distributed around the earth as God had told them to multiply and replenish the earth when Noah and his family got off the ark. God is not going to let a city last 
that with a thousand of his nobles, King Belshazzar calls for vessels to be brought out of the vault of Babylon. And out of the vault of Babylon, he asked for the vessels that his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem. And Belshazzar pours wine into those vessels and toasts the gods of wood and of stone. God's not going to let a city get away with that. And while we have to endure looking at the internet or newspapers, if some of you are still that old-fashioned, that's okay. It's good to be old-fashioned. But to read all the stuff that we have to read about evolution and abortion, which is cold-blooded murder of unborn infants, and we have to read about same-sex marriages and LGBTETCWXYZ and all the rest of them, and it troubles us and it angers us. There's a God in heaven. He sees every bit of it, and He's coming to judge the world. It's what the Bible teaches and what used to be preached in almost every pulpit until the last hundred or so years. Isaiah 13. If you look at its 22 verses, it has three parts. I'm not going to make this very complicated. It had the first five verses, God, that is the God of the Jews, that is our God, mustered his army. Verses one through five will be God mustering, that is calling together into one place, an army to march. Verses six through 18, the second section will be God's wrath to crush Babylon by the Medes and cause them great fear, great consternation, great pain, great suffering, and a great slaughter. Verses 19 through 22 will be a summary that the great city of Babylon would be totally and finally and perpetually ruined. Praise His glorious name. Amen. This is what happens to the enemies of His church. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ, we heard about a martyr. And Rome is nothing but a shadow of what it was in the Dark Ages. Rome is the laughingstock. Italy was the laughingstock of World War II. The great Roman Empire and its mighty legions was the laughingstock of having the least efficient fighting force in World War II. Poor Adolf. You'll hardly ever hear me connect those two words. Poor Adolf had to send divisions to protect the Italians from themselves because they were so incompetent. All of that is to say God raises up nations and God puts nations down. Right. God has raised up America and He should put her down if His word is true. Soon, except for the remnant of faithful ones in her that still love Him, fear Him, and love His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us be part of that remnant in America to preserve her days a few more, longer. This chapter is different, and I'm, I'm not sorry about that because I trust God and His Word. What can we learn? God is in total control of world events and politics and military maneuvers. God will destroy all His enemies of His people in anger because He's jealous for them. The Bible says, the Lord our God is a jealous God. His name is jealous. So when others mess with his church, he revenges them. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. These are some of his great works that we want to rejoice in and worship him for. We want to grow in faith and hope and trust and worship so that every day of our lives, no matter what the news may bring, God's in charge. We have a dear sister, 88 years of age, who can't be here with us this morning, whose answer to every single bad event in her life is, the Lord is in control. Amen. The Lord is in control, and we should learn that right here. Right. And we're going to learn some lessons in interpreting Bible prophecies because we're going to read prophetic language and realize that it is quite extravagant, uses a lot of similitudes. It's very metaphorical and figurative, and so we want to learn that and understand that for other passages of Scripture. Let's go. Let me read to you the first section 
of Isaiah chapter 13, which is the first five verses. The burden of Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos did see. Lift ye up a banner upon the high mountain. Exalt the voice unto them. Shake the hand, that they may go into the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my sanctified ones. I have also called my mighty ones for mine anger. Even them that rejoice in my highness. The noise of a multitude in the mountains, like as of a great people. A tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts mustereth the host of the battle. They come from a far country, from the end of heaven. Even the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Amen and amen. amen. I hope you love every word of God. Every phrase of God, every clause of God, every sentence of God, every verse and chapter of God. These are the words of the Lord God, our Creator and our Father in heaven. The burden of Babylon. The word burden means God's prophesied judgment against a place. The language is common. Turn a couple pages to Isaiah 15, which will be next Sunday, if the Lord will bless us today. Notice the first four words of Isaiah 15, the burden of Moab. Look at chapter 17, the burden of Damascus. Damascus was the capital of Syria, the northern enemy of Israel. So the burden, whenever you see that word, not every time you see it, because sometimes it means a load that someone is carrying. And in that sense, it's a load that the prophets are carrying because they have to unload their load against the city. But the real burden is what's going to fall on Babylon. Right. And it's described in these two chapters, the burden of Babylon. And we could go on and on about the word burden and God's burdens upon his enemies, but we will pass on. We already know that this book is by Isaiah, the son of Amos, and that he saw it and delivered this burden about Babylon. It the reason he is mentioned here again is we have a different section of the book. And so it's a reminder that Isaiah, the prophet of God, saw what was going to happen way before it did happen. Right. It's important for us to remember, and using round numbers, using round numbers, Isaiah is prophesying between 650 and 700 B.C., the event he's describing doesn't happen until 450 B.C. He is describing an event 200 years in advance. God loves to prophesy things in advance. And he tells us three times in the Gospel of John, I love to prophesy things in advance so that when they occur, you will believe that I am He. Amen. Fulfilled prophecy is the greatest evidence that the Bible is the only holy book on earth that is supernatural. There are lots of holy books, but only one is supernatural because only one has fulfilled prophecy. And this one doesn't have ten fulfilled prophecies or a hundred fulfilled prophecies, but hundreds of them. It's an incredible book. Now, what is very special about this particular prophecy is that Babylon was not significant at this time. Assyria was significant at this time. In fact, chapter 10, we had just read about Sennacherib, and when we get to chapters 37 through 39, they will be about Sennacherib, the king of the Assyrians, because it is the Assyrian empire that rules the world at this time, and Babylon is merely a province of Assyria. And Assyria's capital was that great city, Nineveh. On the Tigris River in Mesopotamia. Babylon was on the Euphrates River in Mesopotamia, and they are a number of hundreds of miles apart, Nineveh being far north of Babylon in the southern part of Mesopotamia or the plain of Shinar. So let's keep going. Verse 2 is simply what needs to be done to muster an army. 
you got to lift up a banner and put an ensign or a standard in the ground and say this is the rallying point. Lift up a banner upon the high mountain. That means get it up where people can see it. And there's, a, there's a signal corps in order to muster an army together. Right. Exalt the voice. That means to yell like I do, but louder. Worse, though hard to imagine. Shake the hand. Very simple. He's mustering an army. And he tells you that that's what this section is about in verse 4, where he uses the verb muster. Okay, verse 2, that's all it's doing is God is calling his army together. Don't ever think that an army in this world is outside of God's plan, call, control, and use. Armies do terrible things. War is terrible. Boys think war is glorious. That's why they volunteer and they get drafted. Boys think war is glorious. The older we get, the more terrible we know war is. But never think that there's been a terrible war outside the plan and control of Almighty God. This is an example of it. We have many, many other examples of armies and nations and destruction and evil, and I'm using the word evil in the sense of trouble and pain, being under the control and use and purpose of Almighty God. Verse 2 is simply God calling His army together and telling them what the purpose of the expedition will be, and that is to go into the gates of the nobles, describing this expedition as one of the easiest in military history. Who were the nobles? The nobles of Babylon. This army is going to be called together. Babylon is not going to come out and fight. Babylon is going to trust in the walls of their city. They're hanging in terraced gardens and the flow of the water from the Euphrates that they can withstand a siege for 20 years. But they will take it in one night. And so as the army is mustered and they ask, where are we going? You're going into the gates of the nobles. You're all going to get rich and it's going to be easy. The gates are going to be open. That's not said here, but it's said in many other Bible prophecies. Verse 3, we must keep moving. You may remind me of that. You, well, don't do that. It'll hurt my feelings if you, uh, let's keep rolling because we have a lot of ground to cover. Verse 3, this is God speaking. I have commanded my sanctified ones. I have also called my mighty ones for mine anger, even them that rejoice in my highness. These are the Medes. Okay, how do you know they're the Medes, Pastor? Because I read ahead once in a while when I study. And if, and if you go ahead to verse 17 of this chapter, it will tell you what the whole chapter is about. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them, that being the Babylonians, and which shall not regard silver, and as for gold, they shall not delight in it. And it goes on. It, it's the Medes and the Persians against the Babylonians. It happened in 457 B.C. It's well known in history. Cyrus the Great and Darius the Mede. Darius the Mede was Cyrus's the great uncle. They came together, raised an army between their two nations because they were sick and tired of Babylon. They marched on Babylon. Babylon didn't come out to fight. Darius and Cyrus's engineers, their army corps of engineers, diverted the waters of the Euphrates River into a place made for high water and flood, times of flooding, and marched the army through the river bed of the Euphrates River and took the city in one night while Belshazzar is toasting his gods of wood and of stone with the vessels taken from the temple of Almighty God in Jerusalem. That's what this is about. It's very, it's, it's described many times in the Bible in different ways. And because we're in the book of Isaiah, we're going to encounter it a number of times. And we want to realize it and remember it and apply it. And Wednesday night, using the slides, we looked at the history of the city of Babylon. Okay, God says they are my sanctified ones. To be sanctified means to be consecrated or dedicated to a divine purpose. That's all it means. The Medes, pagan idolaters, were God's sanctified ones, consecrated and dedicated to His use. I've called my mighty ones. Oh, and they were mighty. 
This was Media, northern Iran. Persia, southern Iran. Babylon, Iraq. Babylon is 60 miles south of Baghdad, or where Babylon once was. It's Hilla, Iraq. H-I-L-L-A-H. There is no Babylon, because God fulfilled Isaiah 13. Media was a mighty province, area, territory, and people of northern Iran and Persia southern. They were mighty. And God has called them in his anger against the Babylonians, even them that rejoice in my highness. They rejoice in his highness indirectly. They were pagan idolaters. These Medes did not celebrate and go to church and worship the Lord Jehovah of the Jews. But they celebrated that they had gods with them, helping them, because they took an impregnable city in one night. And so they're exalting in God's highness by what he was able to pull off using them against a superior force, but they did it indirectly. All you need to do to find out how that works is to go back to Isaiah chapter 10, where God said about Sennacherib, He does not think so in his heart that he is mine that he's the saw and I am shaking him, that he's the ax and I'm hewing with him. He is rejoicing that he is so successful indirectly in God's favor upon him because it's God that did it all. Verse four, this is the sound of an army coming together. The noise of a multitude in the mountains like as of a great people, a tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together, the Lord of hosts mustereth the host of the battle. And so this is prophetic, extravagant, figurative, but literal in certain respects language of an army coming together. There's, there's nothing complicated about these words. There's nothing mysterious about them. God is bringing an army together made up of Medes and Persians under Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Great. The Lord of hosts mustereth the host of the battle. It's God calling them together. Jump ahead to verse 17 again, just so that I can remind you. Behold, I will stir. Now, when things go on in the world and there's trouble brewing, someone's stirring the pot. God says he's the one that stirs the pot. He stirred up the Medes to want to go fight. Wars are costly, especially if you lose. (laughs) They're very costly. Wars are costly. And so nations don't like to go to war unless there's high prospects and probability of success and riches, which this expedition is going to have because of verse 2. They're going to enter into the gates of the nobles. But that's an army being mustered in verse 4. Let's not make it more complicated than it needs to be. Could I spend two sermons all day today on verses 1 through 5? Yes. Would that be efficient use of our time? No. So let's keep moving. Verse 5, they come from a far country. It was far to the Jews, but it was next door neighbor to Babylon, because Iran is a neighbor of Iraq. From the end of heaven. Yes, it looks like the end of heaven because where the sun rises or the sun sets, that's the horizon, and media was over the horizon from the Jews. And so just understand a little bit of prophetic language from far away. And the words are going to be extravagant. That's the way that the prophets prophesied. A message takes on a very different appeal when it's in the strongest of terms. And, And these terms are glorious. He's mustering an army from the, ends of the, from the ends of the earth. From far away, God is able to raise up an army and bring it against Babylon. Because at this time, his people would be in Babylon as captives. Now they would not be taken captive for another 130 years. Keep that in mind. The Lord knows about your enemies before they're your enemies. Do you like, is that any, of any comfort to you? See, that just makes me shouting happy to know that God knows about my enemies before they're my enemies. Can he take care of an enemy that he knows before he's an enemy? Easily. He's never surprised. 
They come from a far country, from the end of heaven, even the Lord. Notice that the Lord and the army are like one. Because they're like one, they're doing everything he wants them to do. They're going to take the riverbed approach because he's prophesied it 200 years in advance. Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 45 tells us how Cyrus the Great and Darius the Mede took the city of Babylon by diverting the waters and drying up a riverbed. Even the Lord and the weapons of his indignation. His indignation is now not against Israel like it was with Sennacherib of the Assyrians. His indignation is against Babylon and the weapons of his indignation are the Medes. They're his weapon, his axe, his saw, his rod, his staff. The Lord of to destroy the whole land. What whole land? The whole land of Asia, the whole land of the world, the whole land of Babylon. The whole land of Babylon would be destroyed, not instantly, but over time. And that was the purpose for him to eliminate Babylon from the world for its rebellion against him and their destruction of his people. So that's section number one. This, it's the burden of Babylon. Those first four words. When you're in the book of Isaiah and you come upon a chapter like that, like 17, which I've already shown you, and it says the burden of Damascus, grab a Bible dictionary, pull it off, look in the D's, find Damascus, capital of Syria, oh yeah, oh yeah. All my reading in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles tells me that Syria was a great enemy to the north of Israel. And their capital was Damascus, so this is God getting his revenge. Because brethren, for 20 chapters, we're going to have to do this. This is Isaiah. This is Isaiah. And you may find it boring and tedious. I find it very exciting and exhilarating because God just wa- marches right down through a list. These, these, this is the list of enemies that messed with my church. Babylon, Moab, Syria, and he just works his way down. And these chapters are what he's going to do to them all. And do you know what? He basically had one battle axe. Do you know the battle axe's name? It starts with N. And it's not Nabopolassar, and it's not Nabonidus. Okay! It's Nebuchadnezzar. God, but remember, this is before there was a Nebuchadnezzar. Then when God was done using Nebuchadnezzar, and for those of you that read Jeremiah 25 last night, you had a great perspective of the whole thing. I am going to give all the nations of the world to my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, And when I'm done using him to punish all of them, then I will punish the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and his descendants. That's Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 27. They are beautiful prophecies that should be part of your reading if you really want to understand Isaiah 13 and 14. We come to section 2, and I'm going to read verses 6 through 18, because the Bible tells us that proper preaching is reading in the book, in the law of God distinctly, and giving the sense, and causing the hearers to understand the reading. I hope you understand verses 1 through 5, and it's very simple. Let's go further. Howl ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Therefore shall all hands be faint, and every man's heart shall melt, and they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain as a woman that travaileth. They shall be amazed one at another. Their faces shall be as flames. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease, and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a man more precious than fine gold, even a man than the golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore I will shake the heavens, and the earth shall remove out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts, and in the day of his fierce anger. And it shall be as the chaste roe, and as a sheep that no man taketh up. They shall every man turn to his own people, and flee every one into his own land. 
Every one that is found shall be thrust through, and every one that is joined unto them shall fall by the sword. Their children also shall be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses shall be spoiled, and their wives ravished. Behold, I will stir up the meads against them, which shall not regard silver, and as for gold, they shall not delight in it. Their bows also shall dash the young men to pieces, and they shall have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eye shall not spare children. Amen and amen. Isaiah 13 is the fulfillment of Psalm 137. Most people don't know that Psalm 137 is in the Bible. The terrible language and suffering and cruelty that is in Psalm 137. But God has the last laugh, and God revenged such cruelty toward the Jews by doing it to the Babylonians. If you were to read Jeremiah 52, you would read about the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, taking Zedekiah for rebelling against him. Jeremiah told Zedekiah to submit. And he took Zedekiah, sat him down so that he could see clearly, and killed his sons in front of him. Then cut out his eyeballs so that the last sight he ever had were his sons being killed. That is Jeremiah 52 and verse 10. So that when we read anything and hear about children, just understand God never forgets. Isaiah 13, verse 6. These are not difficult verses. The second service is going to be more interesting than the first in certain respects. But let's go through these and let's enjoy them. This is God. What happened to Jerusalem? It hadn't happened yet. It was still to happen in the future. But Nebuchadnezzar came and raised that city to the ground. He destroyed the temple of God that Solomon had built. He took the vessels of the temple that were of value and hauled them off and put them in the temple of his God in Babylon. The women were raped. The children were dashed against stones. The cruelty of the Babylonians came out in revenge against that city for rebelling against it. They didn't stand a chance. Their own prophet was telling them, submit, submit and survive. But they didn't. And so he leveled the city. And so this is God's revenge. You say, did God know that Nebuchadnezzar was going to... God sent Nebuchadnezzar to do it. Because they hadn't kept his Sabbaths. He said, because you don't like my seventh day of rest that I've given to you, you think that working seven or eight days a week will make you more money? Because you don't like my seventh day of rest, I am going to send Nebuchadnezzar to level this city and take you captive 1,000 miles away into Mesopotamia where you will rest for 70 years and you will observe my Sabbath. And when 70 years are ended, then I will punish the king of Babylon and bring you back to your house. And that's when Cyrus the Great said, and brethren, you know, it's in the Bible a couple of times and we're told about it in detail. And we are told about Cyrus by name 200 years before he was born. Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 45 use Cyrus's name. Cyrus said, The Lord God of heaven hath given me a charge to build him a house in Jerusalem. All of you people that would like to go back, I'll pay for it. The Lord be with you. Go and build. Incredible. Oh! Oh, Lord, thank you. I shared something with you that I hope will be of some small historical or practical value to your thinking and to your faith in the Friday update about George Washington. God raised up George Washington to be our George the Great, and I I mean that in all respect. I'm comparing him to Cyrus the Great and what he did for the Church of God in the Old Testament. What did George Washington do for the Church of God of the New Testament but give it a nation where there was a Bill of Rights, the first of which was the freedom of religion and to assemble like this. The Indians thought he was a god. Was he ever, did he ever have three horses shot out from under him in one battle? Yep. Did he ever get back and have nine bullet holes through his cape? Now that's too close for me. I'll take a bullet hole over there in the wall. But not, okay, the Lord raises up men. And they don't have to be Bible-believing Christians. Right. Right. Okay. 
They're still his sanctified ones. They're still his mighty ones. And he specially equips them. And that was a man of men in American history. When he walked into a room, everyone listened. When they needed help, there was only one man they wanted, George Washington. Go get Mr. Washington. Go get General Washington. Go get President Washington. If we do not learn how to take the Bible, form our thinking by it, build our faith, and then see God's hand everywhere, we haven't learned very much. If we just intellectually assent to this as a historical document, we haven't learned very much. The things that were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Verse 6 is what Babylon ought to do, is to howl. And they did. Look at Jeremiah 47. Jeremiah 47. I can't turn very many times. or we're, We are in serious trouble, but it'll be worse. I don't want Jeremiah 47. Nevertheless, let's go back to Isaiah 13. Jeremiah 47 will come up at another time. It's about Philistia. It's at the end of chapter 14. Howl ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. When God Almighty sends destruction, it is terrible destruction. It is well thought out, carefully planned, fully executed destruction to be equal to the crime. And so no one escapes from God. That's verse 6. Verse 7, Therefore, because this judgment and destruction are from God, and because they ought to be howling, and because it's the day of the Lord, and notice, when the Bible uses the terms, the day of the Lord does not have to be the great day of judgment that is yet to come upon the earth. The day of the Lord is used throughout the Bible for great days of the Lord's judgment. That's all. And so we're learning things right now that futurists of the left behind sort don't understand about the Bible. And so they misinterpret so many Bible prophecies. But this day of the Lord is the destruction of Babylon in 456 B.C. in one night by the Medes and the Persians, which is right here for us to simply believe, along with other places in the Bible. Verse 7, Therefore shall all hands be faint. The Babylonian soldiers are going to faint and every man's heart shall melt. They're going to be afraid of what is happening as this army approaches and gains access to the city. Surprisingly so. Verse 8, And they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them. These are, this is not good for a fighting force. This is not a good fighting spirit being described in verse 8. They shall be in pain as a woman that travaileth. They shall be amazed one at another. Amazed is to be in consternation that the that this army gained access to the impregnable city in one night. It was totally shocking. They had, I showed you on Wednesday evening, verses in the Bible that said, the men of Babylon forbear to fight. They trust their city walls, and those city walls were a wonder of the world. They trusted their hanging gardens, a wonder of the world. They had food, and they had water, and they had walls, and they had moats, and the moats were filled constantly by the Euphrates water. They had it made. But not when the Lord is going to have a day of judgment against them. They shall be amazed one at another that it had happened this quickly that the city was taken. Their faces shall be as flames rushing up with shame and embarrassment for all the big things they said about their city is going to sit a lady forever. The words in the Bible that Babylon used about their city, she shall sit a queen city forever. Taken in one night. They're totally ashamed. Flames are red. Behold, verse 9, the day of the Lord cometh, the day of the judgment of Babylon, 200 years from when Isaiah wrote and spoke these words. Cruel, it'll be cruel, with, both with wrath and fierce anger of the Lord through the Medes to lay the land desolate, because God is through with Babylon. He is going to lay it desolate, des- deserted of human inhabitants. They won't even keep their flocks in this huge territory. And he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. The sinners of the Babylonians. The sinners that were particularly guilty of having perpetrated the crimes against Jerusalem. For the stars of heaven and the constellation thereof shall not give, the constellations thereof shall not give their light. 
The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. When we look at a verse like this in prophetic language, we can go after it two ways. Because we know the third way isn't possible or true. The third way is to be a literalist. Futurists, with whom we disagree, that put all the prophecies in the Bible out in the future yet, the futurists are literalists. But we don't read verse 10 literally, that the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof stopped shining, and the sun and the moon stopped shining. We, that didn't happen. And so we don't believe that. And we understand prophetic language because of what the Bible tells us of how the prophets prophet spoke that this was not to be understood literally. Now there's two ways we can approach it. Number one is to go into each of these little nouns or the bodies that are here considered, stars, constellations, moon, and sun, and find in the Bible that sometimes they represent rulers and leaders. Do you remember Joseph and his dream in Genesis 37? Okay. Stars bowing down and worshiping him. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 10 tells us that stars can be used that way. Do we have stars in the entertainment world? And we mean by a star, a high and lofty one. Do we have stars in the athletic world? Yeah, he's a star player, a high and lofty one. So it could be approached that way. You don't need to do it that way. There's a simpler way. The prophets used cataclysmic language in the natural realm to represent cataclysmic events in the political realm. So all that is being said in verse 10 is, there is going to be a complete upheaval of politics. And was there? Yes. What was called an empire that stretched from India to Ethiopia ended in one night and replaced by a new empire. Now, this kind of language, it's in Matthew 24. See, when I find this kind of language in Matthew 24, I don't get nervous or worried about it. I understand it to be prophetic. It's Matthew 24 and verse 29. But when I find language like this, and then after words like this, Jesus said, all these things shall come to pass on this generation. Do you know who I believe? I believe Jesus. Do you know who I not believe? Me or anyone else that wants to say that that event has to be in the future because it hasn't happened yet. Well, it's, it's prophetic. It's, it's cataclysmic, hyperbolic, extravagant, prophetic language. How else do you say in prophetic terms? Remember, the prophets told us they used similitudes. That's a long word for similes. That's a long word for comparisons. And so what would it be like if the stars and the constellations and the sun and the moon did not give any light? It would be a total upheaval of lives. What would it be like when Babylon is overthrown? A total upheaval of things. So that's what verse 10 is for. Verse 11. We have to keep going, brethren. Oh, What feeling should I have when you're 50% of the way through the verses and 80% of the way through the time? That math doesn't work. But let's work it anyway. Verse 11. And I will punish the world. What world? The Babylonian world. Because he didn't punish the rest of the world, he punished them. And I will punish the world for their evil. You say, well, the world sounds like the world. Really? Let's try Luke 2.1. And the days of Caesar Augustus, a decree went out that all the world should be taxed. What did the Cherokee nation pay? What did you pay to Caesar Augustus? All the world simply meant all those tax-paying people of the Roman world. And you've got to understand it in context. Caesar Augustus didn't tax the Japanese. He didn't tax the Eskimos. Okay, come back. We've got to understand words the way the Bible uses them. And I will punish the world, the Babylonian world, for their evil. Have you ever said to somebody... The whole world's going nuts. Have you ever said that? What happened? You read two articles in a row that were bad? Just think. Why'd you say it? You didn't mean the whole world. You, did, you were trying to make a point. 
And the Lord's making a point. I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. There's the, there's the arrogant and haughty Babylonians that he would bring down. The proud and wicked Chaldeans, God was going to punish the enemies of his church. They would never rise again. Verse 12, I will make a man more precious than fine gold, even a man than the golden wedge of Ophir. Ophir is the most special gold in the Bible and the rarest of the gold in the Bible. God is telling us that the Medes are going to kill so many Babylonians that to find a man is going to be like digging in the ground in your garden and finding gold. I will make a man more precious than fine gold. And that isn't just any gold. That's 24 karat gold. That's .99 gold. That's, this is prophetic language. This is Isaiah telling what's going to happen to the Babylonians. They're going to be slaughtered. Verse 13, Therefore I will shake the heavens, and the earth shall remove out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts, and in the day of his fierce anger. God is going to be so angry that when he comes and assaults the city of Babylon by his Medes and Persian army, it's going to be as if he's shaking the heavens and the earth removing out of her place. This kind of language is used elsewhere in the Bible, like Habakkuk chapter 2. Here, shaking the heavens and the earth means that I am going to change things politically. Shaking the heavens and the earth in Habakkuk chapter 2 is changing things religiously. Because the Apostle Paul takes the shaking of heaven and earth in Habakkuk 2 and quotes it in Hebrews chapter 12 that that was the shaking away of the Old Testament to bring in the New Testament and the New Testament kingdom is here to stay. This is wonderful language and we, we start to learn the whole Bible. My secretary was so thankful a couple of weeks ago for the little bit we've learned in Isaiah already that it makes reading the Psalms much more interesting and being able to see some of the same terminology, the same places, the same locations, the same verbs. May the Lord bless us to learn His Word. Amen. The Old Testament is three quarters of our Bible. So we do spend some time there. I'll shake the heavens and the earth, and the earth shall, I'll shake the heavens, and the earth shall remove out of her place. Everything is going to be turned upside down, and all the laws that have been in place will be no more. But it's politically. The political laws of Babylon ended, and the laws of the Medes and the Persians took over. In Habakkuk and Hebrews, religious things changed. Right. And why is it all changing? Why is Babylon being turned upside down and shaken away? And why is there a cataclysmic political event taking place that can be compared to stars, constellations, moon, and sun not shining? Because God is angry. Why is God angry? Because of what they did to His people. They, the Babylonians raped His daughters dashed his children against stones and leveled his city, leveled his temple that Solomon had made him, that he dwelt in between the cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant and took his vessels and used them to toast their gods of wood and stone. That's why he's angry. And when these men open their mouths and blaspheme like Stephen Hawking against the creator God of heaven, he will judge. Lord, have mercy upon America for letting that man ever put foot on our shores. Right. Verse 14, it, that is Babylon, shall be as the chaste roe. What does a deer run like? A female deer. For those of you that have hunted, you know that a female deer can dart this way and that way and run so fast to get away. That is her protection. She has no way of defense except other than camouflage, when she's standing still, but to run away. And Babylon is going to try to run away from the Medes and the Persians. It'll be chased, and as a sheep that no man taketh up. If you can go online and type into YouTube, little lambs having fun in field, type it in, and see how a sheep can run, and you aren't going to catch one to pick it up. It's, there's nothing like prophetic language. I've done this before. I'm asking you to do it. You will belly laugh at what God made those little animals do to protect themselves. They can, you know, they talk about guys in the NFL that can turn 90 degrees in a second. Watch these animals. <laughs> They're incredible. Well, right here in the Bible. 
right here. Babylon's going to be trying to run away from the Medes and the Persians, but they can't. They're inside a city. And the Medes and Persians have it surrounded. They, sh they shall every man turn to his own people. All the mercenaries and confederates that were there in Babylon are going to return home or try to return home. They're going to flee into their own land. They had come and joined what they thought was the most prosperous place to live, where they could get ahead, sort of like Lot pitching his tent towards Sodom, but it didn't quite turn out the way they wanted it to. Verse 15, Everyone that is found shall be thrust through, and everyone that is joined unto them shall fall by the sword. Cyrus had declared in the streets of Babylon when he took the city that night, in the Syriac language, Stay in your houses. Anyone in the street will be killed. Everyone that is found shall be thrust through, and everyone that is joined to them shall fall by the sword. Their children also shall be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses shall be spoiled, and their wives ravished. God brought exactly upon Babylon the crimes they had committed against the Jews. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them. He's now telling us... The, the historical aspect for us to know what the chapter is about. I will stir up the Medes against them, that is against the Babylonians, which shall not regard silver, and as for gold, they shall not delight in it. Cyrus the Persian, when his great Persian army met up with the great Median army of Medes, said, O ye Medes, and all present, I truly know that not for want of money are ye come out with me. I know by your alacrity and your zeal and your passion for this conflict and your eagerness and the haste which you have shown to join battle with me against Babylon that you're not here for money. Right. Isn't that wonderful? Isaiah 13, 17 already told us that. Why would they not be motivated by money? Because God stirred the pot. God stirred them up. That's what it says. I will stir up the Medes. They're not going to come for money or reward, though there would be plenty of that. They would come because he stirred them up. Verse 18, their bows, synecdoche for their weapons, also shall dash the young men to pieces, and they shall have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eye shall not spare children. The Medes and the Persians would not spare children, but slaughtered in the city because that is what Babylon deserved because that is what Babylon had done to Jerusalem and the cities of Judah and to the Jews. And they were his church. They were God's church. And you don't do that to God's church and get away with it. And so this is the Bible. This is Isaiah coming to the land of Judah and prophesying under the reigns of kings Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And this is what, how he comforted the people by telling them of an enemy they didn't even know they had that God would take care of. Right. So we don't, you know, you may not even know if you have an enemy. We may not know what the, who the enemy, the next enemy of America is. It's okay. God does. Right. God does. And do you know what? If we'll live righteously, do you know what he's going to do to them? It'll all work out okay. Right. Oh, Lord. I hope, there isn't a, I hope there isn't a verse between 6 and 18 that you don't understand. Right. I hope that you can teach it to your children. I hope that you can see the figurative language, the severe language, the military language. The day of the Lord is simply this day of the Lord, and there's lots of them in the Bible. It's when the Lord's going to do something terrible. It's called the great and terrible day of the Lord in the last two verses of the Old Testament, and that was the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., that John the Baptist and Jesus came to warn them about Jerusalem being destroyed by Rome in 70 AD. And it's called the great and terrible day of the Lord. I hope that verses like verse 10 don't trouble you. And I would recommend that you don't try to find a meaning for each one of those heavenly bodies, but that you take the whole as cataclysmic language describing a tremendous event in the natural realm to be compared to a great political upheaval. Shaking the heavens and the earth in verse 13. He turned everything upside down. 
politically. The Earth didn't move at all in its rotation or in its orbit. It didn't move. It's figurative language. It's a similitude for tremendous changes taking place nationally and politically. Verse 16 is very literal. You say, can you show us in the Bible? Yes, I could, but there isn't time. Can I show you that the women were raped when Nebuchadnezzar took the city of Jerusalem? Yes, it's in Lamentations 5 and 11, I believe is one, memory that, one verse that comes to memory. You say, rape's a terrible thing. Smashing little babies is a terrible thing. What did the Jews do to deserve that? They sinned against God. That God had done everything He could for His vineyard, and all He was looking for was a little bit of nice wine. Mm -hmm. And they brought forth wild grapes. You say, is God still the same today? He is. He is. When He describes the shaking of heaven and earth in Hebrews chapter 12, He then says this, For our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, 29. That's after chapter 10, where Paul wrote, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He has not changed. Let us be the righteous remnant in America to save this nation from all those that have set themselves against the Creator, who has given us His laws for love, sex, and marriage, and not in that order. Verse 19, I read to you the third section. This is a summary of the total, final, and perpetual ruin of Babylon. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees' excellency, shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It shall never be inhabited. Neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. Neither shall the Arabian pitch tent there. Neither shall the shepherds make their fold there. But wild beasts of the desert shall lie there. And their houses, whatever's left of them, shall be full of doleful creatures. And owls shall dwell there. And satyrs shall dance there. And the wild beasts of the islands shall cry in their desolate houses, and dragons in their pleasant palaces, and her time is near to come, and her days shall not be prolonged. Amen and amen. That little timing, those two timing clauses at the end of verse 22, her time is near to come, her days shall not be prolonged, You just keep in mind that God looks at time differently than we do. This was 200 years before the first overthrow of Babylon by the Medes and the Persians. Alexander the Great would come 120 years later and die in the city of Babylon, wanting to rebuild it to be the capital of his empire. And so there were hundreds of years involved, but the Lord can speak this way because to him a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day because we're taught that in second peter chapter 3 back to verse 19 and babylon the glory of kingdoms it was it was a glorious kingdom when nebuchadnezzar had that dream of all the world empires in an image and there was a head of gold daniel told him thou art the head of gold you're the most glorious kingdom on earth god called nebuchadnezzar a king of kings And Babylon, here's the summary of chapter 13, the glory of kingdoms, the greatest kingdom, the most beautiful, the most luscious, prosperous, rich, powerful, the beauty of the Chaldees' excellency is going to look like Sodom and Gomorrah, and God burned that to a crisp. There was nothing left of Sodom and Gomorrah, and there is nothing left today as men try to find where Sodom and Gomorrah once were. They think that Sodom and Gomorrah may be under the Dead Sea. 
What's the other name for the Dead Sea? The Salt Sea. I'm not going to chase that one any further. That's for you to chase. I don't really care where Sodom and Gomorrah are or where they were. I know what happened to them because the Bible tells me. And we trust the Bible. I believe because the Bible tells me so. It's a very simple way to live, and it's, it's a wise way to live. And so those pictures, those slides, that PowerPoint presentation I shared with you on Wednesday evening showed some of the pictures today of Babylon fulfilling these prophecies. And I want you to remember that when Emperor Trajan wanted to visit Babylon, because it was known historically as the greatest city of several empires, several, Babylon, Persia, Greek. Alexander died there. The Persians opened up their empire there, but then moved it to what's called today Susa in Iran. Shushan in the Bible, Shushan the palace. Trajan visited and said nothing but mounds, stones, and totally deserted. First century. No one touched the mounds from generation to generation. No one touched the place until the middle of the 1800s. In 1899, the great German archaeologist dove into that place and stayed there 20 years and pulled out enough neat stuff that we know there was once an incredibly beautiful, wealthy city under those mounds. Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, Saddam Hussein, you know what happened to him when he tried to rebuild the city of Babylon. These verses were fulfilled. It shall never be inhabited. The pictures that I showed you, you know, there are tourists that go there. It was closed even to tourists until 2009. I mean, in 2003, we dropped our big bulldozers in there and built a coalition base. And so we leveled it and flattened it. There's fuel in the soil. You know, that was a United Nations headache that we caused by going there, but I'm not going to take either side of that issue. It shall never be inhabited, and it's not inhabited today. And I want you to know, for those of you that haven't looked at the improved slides, that when I showed you the $5 million, which is nothing, a palace for $5 million? $5 million doesn't buy you much today. You say, when was the last time you tried to drop that in a counter? I didn't. But that $5 million palace, there's nothing in it. You know, type it online. Type online and go take a look at what's in it. All the glass has been taken out of the windows. There's nothing left there. I know I've said it twice. But see, I love fulfilled prophecy. I just want to make sure you understand that what is written here has been fulfilled. And for 1,800 years, no one even stuck a shovel into a mound. They were shocked. It was right there under just a little bit of soil. Did you see that Ishtar gate that they had rebuilt from the glazed blue brick? Right. Those are all real. Yep. They found them. That was the greatest puzzle to put, to, put that together. And it's in, it's in Berlin, where it should be. It's a German that found it. It shall never be inhabited, and so verse 20, you can understand that. It's, it's going to be totally desolate. When God says desolate, it's desolate. Right. It's deserted. But wild beasts of the desert are going to be there. And if there's wild beasts of the desert that have taken up their home there and are hidden in little holes and the decrepit houses that might be left and have found their little nook where they can hide, nobody's going to bring their sheep around them because they don't want the sheep to be around such animals. Right. Doleful creatures or dismal, uh, negative, wild, dangerous creatures. Then there's owls that are mentioned. Owls don't like to be around people, but there's owls sitting in this deserted territory as we have in verse 21. And satyrs shall dance there. You say, well, what's a satyr? Well, well, okay. A satyr was half man, half goat. So this is just goats. Have you ever seen goats dance? Isn't that why you go to the zoo, to get near the goats and see them dance? They can dance on a rock, can't they? They can dance up a steep rock and dance down a steep rock. And satyrs shall dance there. You say, well, why does it call them satyrs? Well, I think the better question is, what about the dragons in verse 22? I think we, I think we ought to go to dragons first. It says, wild beasts, 
are going to cry in their desolate houses, so no one's going to want to get near the place. It's going to be like a cemetery. It's desolate. And it was coming. It was coming, and it was sure to arrive. What about the dragons in their desolate places? Here's how I'm going to answer it. See, words like that in the Bible don't trouble me a bit. I ask you a question because you're asking me one. You're asking me, what are the dragons in their pleasant palaces? There were no pleasant palaces left. So they're creatures that could be called dragons. But I have a question for you. Who are the monsters of the midway? Are you going to fault Isaiah, something that we use in America? Who are the monsters of the midway? The Chicago Bears. Amen and amen.